when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the latest series of big Brexit votes in the House of Commons and what, if anything, Theresa May can hope to achieve in her next round of talks with the EU. I'm delighted to be joined by our Whitehall editor, James Blitz, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and columnist Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning, or you could even leave us a nice review. Tuesday proved to be another seismic moment in the House of Commons in its efforts to unlock the Brexit stalemate. No less than seven amendments were tabled and voted on by MPs in their efforts to move Theresa May's hand. And generally, it was a good evening for the Prime Minister. The House may have voted against a notional no-deal Brexit, but it didn't back an amendment that would have given it the ability to stop it. And Mrs May managed to coalesce a slim, if shaky, majority around another amendment that said the House would back her deal if only that blighted Irish border backstop would somehow change. So James Blitz, as I said there, Theresa May actually had a pretty good night in the House of Commons because MPs didn't remove that crucial card that Prime Minister has desperately held on to that the UK could leave without a deal. And they did give a very slight affirmation to her approach. So where are we now? you're absolutely right. I think Tuesday was as good as she was going to get. She, she needed two things on Tuesday. One, she needed some momentum to her negotiation with Brussels, and she got that because Conservative MPs backed an amendment by Sir Graham Brady, which basically said, go back to Brussels, get us something which doesn't involve the backstop, and she got that through. She at least showed she can get a majority vote passed in the House of Commons relating to her deal. And then secondly, there were lots of attempts by backbench Conservative MPs to try and basically foul things up for her, put in um, time limits before which um, she would have to extend Article 50, try and uh, make no deal more difficult, put in place the mechanism to start looking at other things like second referendum, the Norway Plus approach and so on. And all of those pretty much failed bar one rather declaratory motion put forward by Caroline Spellman. So all in all, the Prime Minister's still standing. She's got to come back in two weeks' time and basically got to go through the whole thing again. That's the problem for her. And maybe things then won't be too good, because, number one, I doubt very much that she'll have got anywhere with a negotiation with Brussels. And two, all those backbench MPs like uh, Yvette Cooper, Nick Bowles, Dominic Grieve, are probably all coming back on the 14th of February to basically try and put in place mechanisms that allow the House to take control of the process. 
What I think we saw this week, Miranda Green, was not an effort by the House to really change the process because they failed in that sense. But it was more about mood setting, about where the feelings of MPs are. We've always said that the House of Commons is against a no-deal Brexit. That was clarified through the Spellman Amendment. But the Cooper Bowes Amendment, which sounds like a sort of family solicitor firm... That would have given them the powers to stop it. MPs didn't quite feel ready to take that constitutional jump because essentially that amendment was about saying to the Commons that we will control the agenda, we will control legislation on this one occasion and the government won't. But of course, once you've done that once, you can start doing it again. So the mood of MPs was I got was to just give Mrs May a bit more time to try and get something to make her deal a bit more appealing. But as James says, time is still ticking down in two weeks we can go through this all over again on Valentine's Day. I know and we look forward to that hugely of course. Um, I think you're right to say that it's all about the kind of dynamics now and who starts to shift. I sort of suspect that it might be a bit more fluid than we think it is and that it has been over the last few weeks. You know May's terrible mistake to postpone the vote, the crucial vote on her deal from before Christmas to after Christmas meant that there was a kind of solidifying of opposition. But in the next few weeks, I think we might start to see some things shifting. I mean, apart from the fact that, was it only Tuesday, really, that succession of votes? It it really feels like a long week. And it feels as if we've been stuck in this kind of political doom loop rather than a banking doom loop this time. But actually, there are some signs of things starting to shift. One of the reasons why the Cooper amendment to institute a delay and to postpone the Article 50 March 29th deadline went down is because there was such a split in the Labour Party. And there are real sort of ructions now in the Labour Party. They were whipped to support it, but even some you know, shadow ministers didn't in fact support the bill. And now, crucially, I think... Jeremy Corbyn has actually held a meeting with May in Downing Street. There are all sorts of Labour MPs who represent Leave constituencies starting to come up with quite specific things that they'd like from the government in order to support the deal or at least abstain in the next vote. So I think there are things starting to shift. The other thing you were quite right to draw attention to is that where you've got sort of the Labour Party still sort of a bit all over the place, whipping votes that then don't happen... You've actually got relative Tory unity for a bit and that, they feel, slightly strengthens their hand in getting some tweaks to the deal, some legal reassurances, we'll see. But I think that, by and large, we're still looking at how many people will jump on board for May's deal uh, and that's where the critical calculations will come in two weeks. Of course, all of those rebellious people on both the Tory and Labour sides who were trying to intervene to take control of the process have sort of gone back to the drawing board and are trying to think of fresh ways to intervene uh, when it comes to the Valentine's Day set of votes. But they did fail badly to get their fellows on other sides of the House to coalesce behind a positive plan. So whether they can come up with one in time, I'm not sure. Because, James, the crucial thing that MPs who either want a softer Brexit or to stop Brexit was the combination of the Cooper-Bowes amendment to allow the House to intervene and delay Article 50 and Dominic Greaves' amendment, the former Attorney General, who's produced this amendment that would allow the House to take control of the business every Tuesday and, in effect, have a series of indicative votes about the various options and see where 
you could get a majority, be it a customs union, the Norway style, or a second referendum or whatever it would be. But both of those amendments failed. The question for the 14th of February is going to be they will come back. I imagine Dominic Grieve will put his indicative vote amendment back. I imagine Cooper Bowes will almost certainly come back again. And there will be something else from the government which will outline hopefully more of what Mrs May is going to ask for from Brussels in this renegotiation. In that second vote, do you think there's much chance MPs might do what they didn't do this Tuesday and take control of the process? I actually think it's really hard to say at the moment. I think we've got to the end, and having spoken to a lot of people over the last couple of days, I don't get a strong impression that people quite know how the 14th is going to go. It's certainly the case that Mrs May is not going to come back with a deal. There's not going to be the big second meaningful vote on the 14th. She's going to need more time than that because she's asking for an awful lot out of Europe. There are certainly going to be, I think, some version, I think, of Cooper, Bowles, Grieve, possibly some new way of taking it on. Uh, Remember that uh, Yvette Cooper's is quite a complicated process. It involves legislation, a bill in the House of Commons. I'm not quite sure now whether whether there would be enough time to do that when you come back on the 14th. So it just isn't clear. I, I think the element which is new, which Miranda has spoken about, and which needs a lot of focus now, is that there clearly was quite a strong backbench Labour rebellion against the Cooper Bowles Amendment and the Grieve Amendment. And something is happening within the Labour Party that is basically beginning to entertain the possibility of passing May's deal, in particular with backbench support. And that's the thing which I think now needs to be teased out much more. We've always known that May would get some support in the final, final phase of this process from backbench Labour MPs. We can now see much more clearly what those numbers are. There are 25 that effectively said that they would be prepared to back. And they weren't saying it directly, but nonetheless, they did do what May wanted, which is not to go down the Cooper Bowles and Grieve route. And that's going to be the interesting thing, I think, on the 14th. Absolutely. And this is, I think, the two real things that have changed this week, Miranda. One is the momentum has died from the second referendum campaign because they had to pull their amendment from the vote on Tuesday because they felt they didn't have enough support to see that through. And that was seen as a bit of a humiliation, I think, from Chukumana and Sarah Wollaston and those campaigners. And the second thing is that The view of the People's Vote campaign has really always been that once you get down to that final thing and you've discounted all the other options, Customs Union, gone, May's deal, gone, Norway, gone, general election, gone, then the only thing left standing would be another referendum. And that plan seems to have fallen apart because, as James just said, and for whatever reason, because of the Spellman Amendment, Jeremy Corbyn used this as a reason to now go and meet with Theresa May because he'd said that he would not meet with the Prime Minister unless she'd taken no deal off the table, which, as we know, is just political rhetoric. You can't take no deal off the table unless you cancel Article 50 or you pass May's deal. But he used this as a pretext to go and meet the Prime Minister and... Oddly enough, the meeting seems to have been surprisingly cordial. Well, it's all very peculiar, isn't it? I mean, he did not take in Keir Starmer, who is his shadow Brexit secretary and who has and been... And a supporter cast, of people's a vote. A supporter of the people's vote, but also the person who has crafted the Labour Party's careful position and its gradual edge, you know, edging this way and that over the last few months. He took in his very Eurosceptic aides instead, which was interesting in and of itself. But, I mean, there is movement, James, is absolutely right. I've spoken to some Labour MPs who said 
The problem with the Cooper-Bowles plan was, you know, you delay Brexit, you push back March 29th, but for what purpose? And that their Leave voting constituents are very, very suspicious of this and that it is a block Brexit plan rather than an improve the deal plan. So if something can happen in the next few weeks where there is some sort of delay. I mean, honestly, when even the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, is saying we'll probably have to have a delay anyway just to get the legislation we need to leave, we may be looking at a delay, but it would not be the sort of delay that blocks Brexit. It would be the sort of delay that might mean Labour can come on board in some way. So I think there is a real shift. And there was an interesting moment, James, that the Labour Party backed the Grieve Amendment, which was quite surprising because John McDonnell had told the FT he wasn't interested in addictive votes because it would just be running down the clock. But the fact they backed that suggests to me they were hoping to sort of see, oh, look, if you have a permanent customs union, which is the Labour Party policy, there's a majority for that in the House of Commons. So that seems to be where the direction of travel is going at the moment. You've seen a bit of softening from the Eurosceptics again, who backed the Brady Amendment and backed the PM getting something. But again, it's all back to, is the customs union the way out of this? Yes, I doubt it is. I mean, if I try to really sum up my own thoughts as far as Labour is concerned at the end of the week, I'm becoming more and more convinced that what Jeremy Corbyn wants is for the May deal to go through with backbench support that he doesn't sanction but turns a blind eye to. That, for me, is is the thing that is more and more evident to me from what has happened this week. I mean, from Corbyn's point of view, what does he want? It helps him if May's deal goes through and he hasn't really given it any support. It's a Tory Brexit. He's got nothing to do with it. He's got nothing to do with the economic consequences. The country moves on to discussing the issues of social and economic justice that he wants, and the Conservatives and the DUP start looking at each other after all that and wondering what their coalition is all about. That's what he wants. And I think one of the most important things that has happened this week is that when 25 Labour MPs basically went against Cooper Bowles Eight of them, who were members of his front bench, abstained in that vote. He did not issue any sanction, punishment, or any serious note of concern. That, for me, was more telling than anything else that has happened. In the end, the question in the next few weeks is going to be, is that number of 25 Labour rebels going to grow? The government clearly wants it to. It's putting out more blandishments to them about sort of funding local authorities in their areas and so on. Is Corbyn basically going to go on turning a blind eye to it? I mean, let's be honest. As far as the permanent customs union idea is concerned, Corbyn can push that as much as he wants. But neither he nor May want that to be the outcome. That's the beautiful thing about that particular offer. May doesn't want it. She can't possibly accept permanent customs union. We'll break the Conservative Party forever. It means we don't have any independent trade deal, so she's not going down that road. And he doesn't want it either, because if she were to accept his customs union approach... He would, in the end, be midwife to a deal. And he doesn't want to be midwife to a deal. He wants to be somebody who's just sitting on the sidelines, effectively. And that, I think, is where we've got to. So, briefly, managed to sum up, if there is a strategy from the Prime Minister, hmm. it is essentially to get something, so we're going to talk about in a moment what that might be, to get something, to try and get as much of her party back on board. She would like to get the DUP back on what she has to, I think. Get as many Conservative MPs as well. And then, even if it doesn't quite add up... She knows where the numbers are on the Labour side. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that we've all sort of struggled to the same conclusion this week, that it's Labour where the action is in the next couple of weeks. I do think it's worth just drawing attention to the fact, though, again, that this is only stage one. This is only the withdrawal agreement. And we still don't know where we stand on our final relationship with the rest of the EU. And that is actually much more important than any of this. So what now for Mrs May? She has to go back to Brussels once again to try and reopen talks on a deal that the EU assumed were all over. Although Westminster thinks it has been quite specific about what it wants from a reformed Brexit deal, the EU might think otherwise. So the Prime Minister now has to come up with some proposals that will be acceptable to the EU27 and also win back the Democratic Unionist Party, big parts of the Conservative Party and convince some Labour MPs to back a deal, all while the clock continues to relentlessly tick down towards exit day. So, Alex Barker, when the Brady Amendment went through on Tuesday, what was the general reaction from Brussels here that I think, obviously, there was probably some kind of sense of bafflement, but also confusion about what the Prime Minister really wanted to do? Well, exactly. I mean, first of all, we shouldn't forget, although they they don't say this as much in public, that it's a pretty big deal for the Prime Minister to be reneging on the deal that she negotiated with them not so long ago uh, and agreed and said this was the best and only way to leave with an orderly Brexit. It has an impact and it rattles people here and it accepts people as well. So there's that. The second part is, so what do you want to change? And the Brady Amendment to them is wholly ambiguous. It enabled what some people refer to as the Prime Minister keeping together the precious union of the Tory party by offering different things to different factions. And in terms of a negotiation, it doesn't provide the clarity, the precision they would need to interpret it uh, and to work on it. So they've told the Prime Minister that. They're waiting for her to come forward with more specific ideas And they're very clear that they don't want to reopen the withdrawal agreement. They, to be perfectly frank, uh, they probably would open the withdrawal agreement if the Prime Minister was asking for something that was within their red lines and was likely to win a majority. But that doesn't seem very likely at the moment. Uh, The kind of demands they're making are things that the EU have been rejecting for a very long time. And um, I think we'll go through the motions again over the next couple of weeks. So Robert Shrimsley, when this amendment went down, Sir Graham Brady, who put this amendment forward, had said in an interview that he was thinking of some kind of legal codicil, some additional clarifications to the withdrawal agreement that would confirm the status of the backstop as a as a temporary thing. But then as soon as his amendment passed, Mrs May stood up in the House of Commons and said, I'm going to go off and reopen the withdrawal deal now. As Alex said, that might be achievable. But the dynamics between those two things are quite different. So do you have any sense of what you think the Prime Minister is trying to do, apart from manage her party? That's obviously her number one priority at the moment. Well, I mean, I think actually she moved to talking about securing treaty changes before the Brady vote. She said it to the Backbench 22 committee on the eve of the vote. I think it's quite touching when people complain that this amendment and Mrs May are not showing clarity. They're not meant to show clarity. They're meant to be obscure. They're meant to be vague because she is trying to play two sides off against each other. Three, if you include the EU. And she is trying to sort of finagle Parliament into a place 
where it delivers something roughly akin to her deal. I mean, I don't think she's reneged on her deal because she was beaten by 230 votes, but I think she is trying to secure as much of it as possible. And I, I attach very little value to any of the public statements being made by anybody at the moment. Unless you have a, a window into Theresa May's mind, nobody can be absolutely certain what her preferred outcome is, apart from the deal that she recommended to Parliament. But my sense of this is that she is going through several motions. She has got several plates spinning at the same time. And she still believes that as the clock runs down, she can deliver Parliament to something fairly close to her deal. So really what she is looking for, because the right wing of the Conservative Party would like to get rid of the backstop. We know that's not going to happen. They've now softened their language a little bit to say, well, if it could be amended or clarified in some way, then that would be acceptable. Alex, do you think, you know, how much room for manoeuvre is there for the backstop? Which, for my brief little dip into your world this week, I thought one of the most striking differences between Brussels and Westminster is how the backstop is viewed. That in Westminster, it is this totemic thing that has completely poisoned Theresa May's deal and everybody would like it gone. Whereas in Brussels, the sense that I got was it was just a bit of bafflement about why you're so obsessed about this thing, which we don't really want. It's not an ideal thing, but we need to have it there as proof that Ireland is very important to us. Yes. And, you know, they see its design uh, as very much influenced by the Prime Minister's view of what should happen. The EU did not want to include a UK-wide customs union in the withdrawal treaty. There was months and months of negotiations to try and avoid that. They gave in and then saw this actually prove to be more of an obstacle in Westminster than, than a help for the Prime Minister in, in winning a vote. So in terms of what could change, there are clearly cosmetic changes that could be made, uh, additions. You could see a plan emerge that would explain how you could look for technological solutions in the future, maybe define the kind of things that they might try to look for. But these would be really in line with the fundamental constraints and law of the withdrawal treaty. They wouldn't contradict it. So it's really something that would only be of use if the Tory party and the Prime Minister's majority was seeking an excuse to come round to supporting this deal. The other changes you could make to the withdrawal treaty would be going back to versions of it that the EU preferred in the autumn. There were slightly different structures to the backstop. But again, the fundamental Northern Ireland only special status is always there. That's the problem that the Prime Minister has had all along. Uh, the DUP have been adamantly against it. So you can maybe make some surgical changes to the withdrawal agreement. You can maybe present it in a slightly different way. But if you're within the EU's red lines, it's not going to um, fundamentally change things in terms of the politics of Westminster. And this is where I think the question is, Robert, that there are clearly Conservative MPs who do want a ladder to climb down and are looking for an excuse to back Mrs May's deal. But it's got to be a realistic way for them doing it. It can't be, you know, Mrs May can't come back with something very slight. And then suddenly Jacob Rees-Mogg and the DUP and the ERG go, oh, well, actually, forget all that. We actually now back Mrs May's deal. This is a beautiful, wonderful thing. So the question is, where is the gap there? And where, whatever, if Mrs May gets the sort of things Alex is talking about... Is that going to do it? No, there isn't. And the one thing we need to understand, there isn't a gap there. That's the key point. One side of this argument has to lose. 
And, you know, you can present them with some face savers, you can try and offer some climb downs, but fundamentally they've talked themselves into an absolutist position that cannot be to- they cannot talk themselves out of unless they were to win in a face-off with the European Union over the backstop, which nobody thinks they're going to do. I don't think Theresa May can secure the outcome she wants until once... She says she's trying to run two arguments at the same time. You could have no Brexit or you could have no deal. Until one of those is down, she cannot get the other people to back her. In the end, she has... And I think what's going on really is that she is trying to assemble the coalition for her deal against the threat of no deal. And she has allowed herself to be pulled towards her hardliners to make everybody else get into line with her. She has to, in the end, defeat them. They have to lose if she's going to get her deal through. And most of them, there is certainly a percentage of them, we can argue about how many there are, who will never come round to it. And we don't know whether the DUP, whether they can be pulled round in the end or not. But she is, as you can have seen this week, in the business of assembling a coalition to defeat her own party. She's enjoyed the party unity. She'll try and maintain it if she can. But my best guess, without the window into Mrs May's head that almost none of us have, is that that's what she's actually doing. She is about to present, she's attempting to present her party with the reality that they can unite around her and maintain the unity they enjoyed this week, or she's going to find some other way of driving her deal through. And Alex, of course, the, as this goes on, we're now down to less than two months before Brexit Day. What's the sense in you about a no-deal Brexit? Because I think that there was a lot of talk in Westminster, does this make a deal more or less likely? But by the simple fact of time that we're heading more and more towards the 29th of March, a no-deal Brexit does become more likely. And the UK has been full of stories this week about stockpiling and the sort of things that would happen in a no-deal outcome. In Brussels, is that becoming more likely or is it about the same before the events of this week? No, I think there has been quite a shift in outlook here about no deal. I think people are thinking about it in a a much more realistic way. It's not the kind of academic exercise they were looking at maybe a few months ago. The timing of it, I think there's a nuance here. They probably see the end of June as the real cliff edge rather than March 29th. They expect the UK to come and ask for an extension. If the UK doesn't come and ask for an extension, they'll probably encourage them to, even if we're heading towards no deal, so we have a few more months. They don't want no deal before the elections, uh, which are in May. So they would really see June as the point where no deal becomes a real possibility. And they are preparing for that. You can see laws going through being negotiated on on virtually daily basis here to uh, make the arrangements that they will seek to protect themselves in such a scenario that will provide a a degree of continuity. But basically, they they know it's going to be a real mess on on the day, especially on the Irish border, and that this will be a, a staggered process where you'll also see a negotiation of sorts with the UK over things like the Northern Ireland border and and money. And what about the British perspective on No Deal, Robert? Because even though MPs voted notionally against that in the Spellman Amendment, they still haven't got the means to stop that. They will the ends, but not the means, yeah. Exactly. And the question is, 
is the appetite there? And there has been a lot of columns written this week about how the mood of the British public is changing. I'm not sure how much basis there is for that, but I think there is a growing sense anyway that people feel they want to just get on with it. And if that involves no deal, then that involves no deal. There is an awful lot of twaddle being spouted at the moment about, you know, people just want to get on with it because get on with it sounds so much easier to say than, well, actually, what I think she should do is return and get a little... This is not how people think, and it's very easy to nudge people in that direction. The one thing you have to be absolutely clear about is that if Britain ends up in a no deal with all of its consequences, all the people who are saying, just get on with it, are going to be looking at the government and say, what the hell were you doing? So I think I've always believed that no deal is a less likely outcome, and it would be foolish to rule it out because we're dealing with absurd circumstances and people behaving irrationally. But I've always believed that once the UK is looking right down the barrel of the gun, it will drive through the kind of deal that we're talking about. And I think one point that's worth remembering about Theresa May, we talk a lot about how she's such a party animal and her complete commitment to the Conservative Party. And I think that's true. She does understand that there are two ways the Conservative Party can destroy itself. It can destroy itself with the kind of fundamental split that we're all talking about. It can also destroy itself by driving through a catastrophic policy and inheriting the consequences of it and being blamed entirely for it. The principal argument the Conservatives have against electing Jeremy Corbyn is that it would be economically disastrous for Britain. Well, they are driving through, if they take a no-deal position all the way, a policy that is economically disastrous for Britain. And the voters will absolutely crush them if they do this. And I think Theresa May, in her heart of hearts, knows that. So while she doesn't want to be the prime minister that damages and temporarily splits her party, she also doesn't want to be the prime minister that forces her party to have to change its name to become electable again. And finally, Alex, to try and end on a slightly more optimistic note... What's optimistic? (laughs) What are you talking about? It was a complete ray of sunshine on the choreography and timing of the next couple of weeks so we know mrs may is coming back for more votes on the 14th of february i assume she's not going to get anything from the eu by then how is it going to play out between then and the next couple of weeks and months with the 29th of march coming up very fast look i mean the the first question is tactics around a, a request for an extension here they expect the prime minister to leave that as late as possible they see, I mean, as much as they can read into a, a strategy, they see her trying to run down the clock and, and, and leave it as a kind of binary choice uh, for Parliament at the end. And that would uh, entail leaving the extension request to the very last moment as well. I think if you, uh, around the table of EU leaders, I suspect a lot of them think this is going to be running into, into March. And they don't see uh, much chance of any progress in the next few weeks of the negotiation and certainly not until the UK will would come forward with something that is not even, not just kind of precise but actually looks like it had, might have a commons majority. I've got to remember when the prime minister came in December to the to the summit here and asked for you know what she called the reassurances then she was very detailed and specific about the kind of things she was she wanted and actually was more detailed and specific there than she has been with the House of Commons, with her party, with her cabinet. And she asked those EU leaders to to trust her judgment and trust her authority. And they said no, until I think she's had an honest approach with the parliament and has a clear view from them. I don't think they will engage in, in offering concessions into a I mean, I do think this is a very finely balanced judgment, and I completely understand why the European position is the way it is in terms of the negotiations. I do wonder if there is a mistake here. If everybody knows that the EU has one more thing it is prepared to offer uh, while still you know, within its red lines, be it a codicil or whatever, 
if everybody knows that's still to come, then nobody has an incentive to knuckle down and do anything else rather than just wait for it. And I think there is an argument for saying, actually, do you know what? This is what we're going to offer you. And this is what it's going to be. And this really is it. So don't come crying back because it's not going to happen. I understand the dangers of that approach, which is you think, well, we'll get the, we'll wait for the next thing. But I think there is an argument in forcing the issue a bit more and forcing Mrs May to confront her own hardliners earlier rather than later. Is that not being done to some extent by going through this process over the next three weeks of asking for things like an end date that the EU is just going to say no to? You know, sending over cabinet ministers to test it out again and show that it's not possible. I mean, isn't that part of the process? That- but I think it's part of it. But, but I think since both you and I agree, Alex, that something will come if, there, if there's to be a deal. I can see the argument for, say, do it earlier rather than later. I understand the counter, but I do think put it on the table. Let's just, this is what you're going to get. This is it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to James, Alex, Miranda and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.